One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. We're looking at what it means to live out the Christian life, to, to actually engage in it, to, to do the Christian life. So um, for the last two weeks, we've, we've looked at the idea of repentance. And repentance is Christian talk for uh, turning away from the things we've been chasing, turning towards Jesus. It's, it's, apprehend, it's not just hating sin, but it's apprehending the mercy of God in Christ. And, and so we've, we've talked about that. And this week, as I said at the beginning of our service, we're looking at the central act of Christianity, like the central thing that we do as Christians, which is we worship. We do this, what we're here to do today. What we're doing here has a long history, right? The Holy Cross didn't come up with this. We didn't invent worship. We didn't invent all the elements that we do here. Um, And our passage this morning shows that the very first followers of Jesus were doing this very thing 2,000 years ago. They were walking in worship. So if you have your place in God's Word, our habit here is to stand in honor of God's Word as we kind of recognize the fact that we are underneath the authority of, of God's preached Word Uh, I'm just going to be reading um, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is God's word, even in its brevity. And they, that is the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time we ask that your presence would be felt uh, we're, we don't have to call you into this place. You've called us to worship. Uh, you have bidden us to come to be with you. We don't have to somehow do hocus pocus to make you appear. And you come not based on our worth or our worthiness. You come based on your grace. You come based on your worth. And so, Lord, during this time, we just ask that you would let your grace be known, your presence felt. Would you let Christ and his cross come to the fore? Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, because as we're in the habit of saying, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Look, some of us in this room have been going to church our whole life. Um, That wasn't me, but I know some of you have. Some of you were real little, so you're like, yeah, I mean... All six years of it. But others of you, you've been going to church your whole life. And I don't, rec- I don't know if you recognize, because you've been doing this week in and week out, how odd it is what we do in here on Sundays. This is bizarre. I just want you to step out of church land for a minute. And I just want you to think about what it is that we do here. Think about it. We come in here. You've got, you, you read aloud with everyone around you from this folded piece of paper. Right? like you're back in English class, um, then, then we sing together, we sing the same song all together with words projected on a screen. Where, where in anywhere else in the world do you do that? Like, it's the only place that we do that. Um, and then when, when, uh, when we're done singing, then we talk. We talk out loud to a person who is not bodily present in the room with us. We talk to them as if that person can hear us and will actually answer us. When we're done with that, someone passes around a basket and we put our money in it for which we received no services and will get no goods. 
That goes by. And then, uh, you know, we listen to some blowhard talk for 30 minutes after he reads from uh, some kind of ancient book. Then when we're done with that, we're going we're gonna, to uh, all proclaim together how we believe that we're broken. Then we're going to come up here and eat a bite-sized piece of, well, let's be honest, it's cake, right? I mean, it's not really bread. It's cake. It's awesome. And then, and then we're going to drink out of a less than a shot glass of wine and call that a supper. And then after that, we're going to sing some more and then leave. That's bizarre. Strange, okay, to say the least. But why do we do that? It is strange, and yet Christians have been doing this since the beginning of the, of the Christian church. And, and to be honest, like we, we're not the first ones to think it's strange. The Roman world thought it was weird too, and because they, had no, they didn't actually have experience in Christian worship, and they heard that you did things like you ate the body and drank the blood. They thought Christians were off eating babies, and they had this thing they called the love feast. That sounds sketchy, you know? And so they had all these stories about what these crazy Christians were doing, and Christians had to respond to that. It is weird, and people have thought it's been weird since the beginning. But what we're going to see this morning is that this is what even the very first Christians gathered to do. And so there's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at this in just two ways this morning. We're going to look at the character of worship, and by that we mean the why, why it is that we come to do this. And then we're going to look at the content of worship, which, which means the what. Okay? We're going to look at the why and the what, the, the character and the content. Okay, let's get started with the character of worship. Uh, Before we get into the passage itself, the guy who wrote this, um, who wrote the book of Acts, that little letter that we're reading from, is a dude by the name of Luke. And Luke was an interesting dude. He he was a physician, like a doctor in the early church, uh, which means that he was probably uh, came from money, right? In in the ancient world, there was no bootstraps. You you had no bootstraps from which to pull yourself up. Okay, so if you, if you were educated, if it, all that stuff, it was because you came from wealth. And so he, um, he was wealthy. Uh, he was very well educated. He had a, a, a practice. He was a medical doctor. And yet at some point in his life, and we're not entirely certain when, he came into contact with the gospel preaching of a, another guy by the name of Paul who wrote the, like about half the New Testament. Okay? And, and for some reason, in the midst of all of this, he comes in contact with the preaching of the Apostle Paul. He leaves his medical practice, he leaves all of his wealth behind, and he joins up with Paul to walk around, to walk, to walk around the Mediterranean world to help people encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. That's this guy. That's crazy, okay? But this is who he is. And so Luke tells us here in the book of Acts that the first Christians were devoting themselves. Now, stop. What does that even mean? I mean, what does it mean to devote yourself to something? Well, in the, in the original, like, the, the, the Bible's not written in English, right? So, it's translated into English. But in the New Testament, it's written in Greek. And so, that word in the original we, that we translate, devote themselves, um, means that you're doing something with constancy and purpose. Constancy, like, you're doing it all the time. And you're doing it with purpose. Like, there's an intention behind it, oh, and, and even an expectation, So whatever it is that we're told they did, and we're going to get to that in a second, we know that they did it with constancy and purpose. purpose. You guys ever thought about coming to Christian worship like that? Some of you haven't, because maybe this is your first time here. But have you ever thought about coming into worship with constancy and purpose? To be honest, that's the only logical way to talk about Christian worship, given what the Bible says about us. Because the Bible says, uh, in, in this strange way, that worship is inevitable. 
that, it, that it's inevitable. In other words, like, it's not just Christian, it's human, uh, because everyone worships. Okay, now, before you check me out, because some of you already have, uh, before you check out, like, stay with me for a second. Don't, don't argue with me internally. Let me explain. Because, you see, the word worship in English means to ascribe worth to something, to, to make it, to, to say, this is worthwhile to me. This is worth something. And when you think, and, and, and particularly, it means to ascribe ultimate worth to something. You worship the thing that which you ascribe ultimate worth to. And when we ascribe ultimate worth to something, that means we love it and everyone loves We all love something, someone. We all ascribe ultimate worth to something. You with me? All right, let me go one step further. The story that the Bible tells is that you and I were made to ascribe ultimate worth. Come down here. We're made to ascribe ultimate worth to God. Okay? We were made to ascribe ultimate worth to him, to love him with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. That that means all of us. That's not dividing us up into pieces. That means everything we are. We were were made to love him with everything we are. We were created to be in a dependent relationship with him, to rely on him for for life, for meaning, for um, identity, for our worth. We're made to rely on him for it. But in time, we became convinced of a lie. Some of you are familiar with that, that, that God didn't love us, that, that he was holding us back from our uh, potential, that he didn't really care for us, that we didn't have to give him the place of ultimate worth in our lives. We could replace him with us. We could be like God. And so we betrayed him and we turned from him. He loved us, he provided for us, he created us, and we spit in his face. We spit in his face to have our own way, to do things according to what we thought was right. And the problem is that the Bible, did, the Bible says that when we did that, when we betrayed him and turned from him, moving from dependence on God to independence from God, that things broke. And you know this because you, you've been betrayed, you've betrayed someone else, you know that you cannot betray someone without guilt happening, right? Guilt just happens. You become guilty before that person. You've broken your promises. If you don't know how this works, I want you to go to a school playground for a little bit and just watch the kids, Right? Somebody breaks their promises and there's like a stomping that goes on and tears and you broke your promises. Or you can just hang out at my house and see what happens when I fail my children. Okay? Like this is, this is what happens all the time. You know that this is the way this works. And so we did that. We incurred guilt before the king of the universe. Right? This isn't some schmuck on the side of the road. This is the king. But more to our point this morning, not only did we become guilty, the Bible says that our hearts became fundamentally bent away from God fundamentally bent away from God. Now, what this does not mean, listen to me, what this does not mean is that now we no longer worship. We were made to worship. You're always going to worship. It's like breathing. You breathe. What it means instead is that we worship the wrong thing. Think with me. Everyone in this room, I don't care how old you are, everyone in this room has something that we look to. For our identity, our worth, our hopes. Life will be good if I have X, if I have this. And it will only be good if I have this. For you, maybe it's respect, right? As long as my neighborhood and my my coworkers, as long as the the people, my family, as long as they respect me, life's going to be all right. It's going to be good. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's pleasure or money or acceptance or power, right? Trying to get that thing that we want, that thing that we think will make our lives worth it, Right? Get rich or die trying. 
By the way, a dude should have spent some money on a pitching coach because that was an awful first pitch. I don't know if any of you saw that, but it was terrible. It was terrible. Anyway, all right, so the point is that we, we give that thing that we think is going to give us life and worth. We give it, we, we, we give it ultimate worth in our lives, and we serve it so that it will get us what we want. And all of us do this. We serve it. It's basically like, if I think money and power is going to make my life worth it, I will do whatever I can to get it. If I think success is going to make me somebody to prove to the world that I'm not a bum, then I will do whatever I can to get it. I will serve it. I will worship it. I will bow down to it as long as I'm proved that I'm not a bum. Friends, the Bible calls that worship. That's worship. And the Apostle Paul, the, the dude that Luke ended up following around the Mediterranean world, Apostle Paul sent in one of his letters in the New Testament that what we've done is we've exchanged the truth of God, exchanged the glory of God for a lie, and worshiped the created thing, money, sex, pleasure, power, uh, a football team, a basketball franchise. We, we've done all that instead of worshiping the created thing, or the creator, the creating, the creating one. Okay? And this is true of everybody. Everyone, listen to me, this isn't just true of the quote-unquote bad folks. This is true of everybody. All are turned away from God by our very nature. We want to worship other things. If you think this is crazy, listen, this was my reality this week. My reality this week is like the whisper in my ear, like you can be more successful immediately. It can happen right now. And I spent my entire, like I spent the vast majority of my week bowing down at that idol until my wife got a hold of me last night. He's like, are you crazy? Yes. I'm insane. Like, this is all of us. This is all of us. And this is why, friends, our discussion of what our problem is cannot be purely mor- moral. Look, if you think, if you think that what's going to give you life and worth and identity is being respectable, that people around you think well of you, then you're going to look really nice on the outside. But you're going to still be worshiping something other than God. Let me get more specific. If you think that Money and power are going to uh, give you ultimate worth. Like if, they're gonna, if that's going to be ultimate in your life and you give ultimate worth to money and power thinking that's going to make you somebody. That could look like going out on the corner and hustling. Or it could look like being an upstanding member of the Chamber of Commerce. But the problem is still the same. The problem isn't the way you're trying to get money and power. The problem is that you are worshiping money and power. You're not worshiping the Lord of heaven. You with me? The problem is the same. Our problem isn't just what we do. It's what we worship. And we have all turned away from God. We have all given our love to things that we want to give us what we can only get from him. We are guilty and stuck and we are in need of rescue. But that creates a problem, right? I mean, if, if we're, by our nature, bent away from God, we're looking at a, a, a passage in here in this verse in which, in which God literally is commending these early Christians for their worship. And, and why, how can that be? How can they be commended for this if, if they're bent away from him? And the way that we're tempted to think about that is that we're tempted to think that their worship is commended. What they're doing is commended because they think the right things or they're doing good things, Right? We're tempted to think that because that's what the entire world tells us. That's what every other religion in the world tells you. If you do the right things, you're going to be good. You want to be right, you've got to think the right things. You want to be right, you've got to do the right things. 
Every other religion gives you a set of rules to keep, but Christianity doesn't. You see, if we're stuck in our worship of other things, then we need someone to rescue us. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do, right? Right before this passage, right before uh, Acts 2.42, there's this little thing of Peter's first sermon. The Apostle Peter, right? He was like Jesus' right-hand dude. And, and he's giving his first sermon. He's standing outside and he's, he's preaching to all these folks. And what he does not say to them is that y'all are bad. You guys are bad and you need to clean up your act. You're bad and you need to get better. If you just get better, everything's going to go right for you. Instead, what he tells them is, you're broken and you need a Savior and I've got him. His name's Jesus. Here's why. Here's why he says that. Right from the beginning, when we betrayed God, right there in the garden, God promised to make things better. But he described it really mysteriously. He said, you know, I, I, I'm going to do this, but you're going to do this. I'm going to make this right, but, but you're going to make this right. Uh, I'm going to do this, but humanity is going to fix this. But the problem is, like I said, all of us are messed up. And look, if everyone, if all of humanity is in the middle of the ocean drowning... I can't save you. I'm drowning. And you can't save me. And you can't, we can't save each other. We're all, we need someone who's not drowning to come in and save us. And so that is what God did. Because all of humanity was drowning, God became flesh in Jesus to, to rescue us. Now, I know that sounds strange. Some of us are new to Christianity. Look, Christians believe that God is one, one God in three persons. Like one what and three who's. Uh, like, um, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All are fully God. Uh, they're, they're all fully God, but there's three persons within the Godhead. And so, God the Son, in the fullness of time, came and took on flesh to become Jesus. And so, God the Son is both fully God and fully man. Like, oh God, can we stop with the math? Okay, but just, just track with me. He's fully God and fully man. And this is how God came to rescue us. Jesus lived the life that we were made for. He loved God with all of his being. He worshipped God and God alone. And then he died for false worshippers like you and me. He bore our guilt. That's what the cross is about. Jesus bearing the guilt as a substitute for those of us who are false worshippers. But then he rose again to new life. Look, I know that sounds weird too. Here's what that means. They put him in a tomb. Three days later, not only was the body gone, dude's walking around with them eating fish on the beach. Right? The gospels say he's, he's, he's cooking fish on the beach like, hey, come on, I got, I got breakfast. You know, and and they, eat, they eat with him, they hang out with him. He was dead, they knew he was dead. Look, Roman centurions, that was their business, killing people. They took him down because he was dead and they knew it. They put him in the ground and three days later he's walking around and he's eating fish and he's hanging out and he's talking. Okay? And the resurrection was to show that the payment for our sin was accepted but also that we can have new life in him. This is what I was talking about. Christianity fundamentally does not give you a morality. That's not to say there's not a morality attached to it. it doesn't, that's not what it's about. If you try a new morality with a heart bent away from God, what you'll have is a heart bent away from God with a new morality. That's all you'll have. We need our hearts changed. Christianity doesn't give you a morality. It gives you a messiah. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we are returned to the state that we were made for. Placing God in that place of ultimate worth, depending on him through Jesus. See, God gave Jesus so that we can depend on him and return to relationship with him. And so when we place our faith in him, we're back. 
So in other words, Jesus remakes us so that we can be rescued and return to the worship we were made for. This is how early Christians were commended for their worship. Not because they were better than everybody else. Matter of fact, one of Paul's letters basically says, you're not, you're actually probably worse. But it's because, it's because of Jesus. This is how they can have constancy and purpose in their worship. Because Jesus has rescued them. Still with me? All right, one more thing we need to highlight about these words before we move on. And that is the constant need. Because you see, we talked about um, devoting themselves and how that, what that means. But the way in which Luke communicates this in the original means that it's something that is continually happening. Continually happening. In other words, they are continually devoting themselves to worship. Continually doing. It's not a one-time act. It's not like, okay, well, I got that done. I've done my Christian thing, and now I, I'm moving on. It's a continual act. Okay, listen to me. If you're a Christian in, in this room this morning, when we come to worship, we are being formed. We are being shaped. Right? And that's why Christians do this every week. Like, it's popular, especially in our circles, in, in, in circles that are um, evangelical and reformed, uh, to talk about how the whole of the Christian life is worship. And that is true. Just as much as all, like if you're married, all of your life with your spouse is love, Right? You're all about loving relationship. So why do I need to get her the card on her birthday? Why do we need to go out on our anniversary? Baby, you know I love you. Like, guys. No, no. Like, even in a relationship that's all about love, you need special time together that's about building relationship, intentional relationship, talking, laughing, enjoying one another, right? In the same way, we are worshipers. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then fundamentally you are a reconciled worshiper of God. But we have to be continually formed by our corporate worship into worshipers of God as well. And so the early Christians were continually devoting themselves to worship, and so do we. Two points I want to make from this. I want to make sure you, you take away from this, from this section. First, worship is not optional. It's essential. It's essential to who we are. You can't can't choose whether or not you will worship. You may choose who you will worship, but you cannot choose whether you will worship. You will worship. Christian or not, you were made for God, and he calls you in Jesus back to worship him. But second, worship is not simply expressive. You know what I mean by that? We often think, especially being a Christian a long time, that what you're doing in here is you're coming in here and you're just saying, God, I love you so much. This is all about Jesus. You're great. And it is that. But it's not simply expressive. It's also formative. Being devoted, coming with constancy, coming with purpose, means that at the very least to come expectant. So when you come into this place, Christian, are you expecting to meet with the living God? Or are you just hoping for inspiration? Are you expecting to meet with the living God? Or are you just hoping that I'm going to give you a few nuggets you can take with you, hopefully it'll last till dinner tonight. If you're lucky, if I'm lucky. That brings us to content. We've looked at the character. Let's look at content now. Let's look at this list of elements that Luke tells us about. He says, first and foremost, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, my guess is that some of us probably know what this means, but others are completely lost. Here's what this means, all right? If you were to read the Gospels, okay, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament, written by eyewitness, they're eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. They're not stories written hundreds of years later. 
They're eyewitness accounts. They bear all the marks of it. Look, the, the entire New Testament, the latest book in the New Testament was written by someone who walked with Jesus. It was written about 60 years after Jesus died. And so, like, the, these are all, the first four books, though, are all eyewitness accounts. And they tell us that Jesus was walking around in, in Galilee and in Judea and in kind of what, what is now Israel. And he's walking around with a bunch of people. And at some point in time, he takes that from that larger group and he picks 12 dudes. And he says, these guys are my apostles, with a big A. These are my apostles. And what he meant by that, uh, th- that word apostle, the closest thing we have is like ambassador. Okay? And so what that means is that they walked with Jesus, they spent intense time with Jesus for three years, they were trained by him, they were given authority by him. They're like ambassadors. And so if Jesus is king, then they have the authority to speak with the words of the king. They speak in the king's name. And after Jesus' resurrection, these dudes, minus one, okay, because one betrayed him, his name was Judas. Judas, bad. The rest of them, okay. Like, so Judas betrayed him, so all these guys, minus one, were set apart by the Holy Spirit to be the, to be the message bearers of Jesus in the world. They are unique and they are unrepeatable. Okay? Now, in this particular case here in Luke, because these are the very first Christians... They're hanging out with the apostles. So when it says that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, what that means is that they're literally sitting around listening to Peter and James and John and Thaddeus and Matthew. Listen to all these people talk. And they're attending to their teaching. But later, as, as time went on, this would mean attending to their teaching as set down in the writing of the New Testament. Okay? Listen to me. The Bible as a whole, not just the New Testament, but as a whole is the authoritative word of God. In other words, it is God's revelation of himself, and it is, it is his word to us how to direct us in our faith. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't actually think that, that's, that God is speaking in this book. Yeah. Yeah, I do. That's what it says of it about itself. It, it kind of tells us that. Uh, it, it tells us this, and, and the Holy Spirit confirms it. Uh, and quite frankly, that's why we read it and I teach from it. If that's not God talking, we are wasting our time. Why, why, why care about what some dude in the first century thought about anything? Honestly, I don't care. If this isn't God's word, I don't, I don't give a rip what Peter thought about anything. He's just another dude. He's just hanging out. He's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. But because it's God's word, it's God revealing himself to us. It's, it's God speaking to us and, and shaping us into, into his image. It is his powerful presence even. We order our lives around God's word because our king speaks and he shapes us into his people. Now, one last word on this before I move on. The Bible is closed. Now you're like, Rick, no, it's not. It's sitting open right on you. But what I mean is that it's closed. Um, That means that there are no new apostles in the sense of James, Peter, those guys. No big A's. Okay? Now, the Bible also talks about these little A apostles. It just means sent one. But there there are no more of these big A apostles. Um, Everything we need for faith in Christ has been given to us in his word. We aren't in need of new revelation to fill the gaps. There aren't any gaps. So listen, that doesn't mean that the Bible speaks to everything you're curious about. Everything you want to know about just means that, as, as the New Testament tells us, everything we need for faith and godliness has been given to us in his word. 
We order our worship around the authoritative teaching in Scripture. Okay? The next thing Luke mentions, though, is not just the teaching of the apostles, it's the fellowship, the fellowship, which is a little strange. Now, that word's notoriously difficult for us to translate. Um, for most of us in this room, if you've grown up in church, fellowship is that chit-chat that you do over coffee. Right? That's fellowship time. That has nothing to do with this word. I'm just telling you. Nothing to do. You can call it what you want. It has nothing to do with this word. This word is much deeper. First and foremost, it speaks of community. Christianity is not privatized. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. Okay? Christianity is personal. It's just not private. Right? The Christian's life is, is, is personal. It's just not private anymore. God rescues us in Jesus. He unites us to his body. We are not lone rangers. But secondly, not only does it deal with community, it deals with what unites us. Listen really close. It deals with what unites us. In other words, the fellowship is something that is about Jesus Christ. The church comes together to worship, and we are not centered around race or class or preference, but around Jesus. It is Jesus who unites us, not whether we're old or young, black or white, rich or poor, educated or not. Jesus is the basis of our unity. If we're not, we're not walking in fellowship. We're walking in sin. Plain and simple. Okay? Last thing on this word, though. When Luke uses it in Acts especially, it has a financial aspect to it. The fellowship deals with money. In other words, we are a people who are committed to one another in word and in deed, in time, and in our Treasure we share with each other. One of the things that's actually said about the early church, and it's, a, it's, it's a, a hearkening back to the Old Testament, is that one of the amazing things about the early Christian movement, it, was, it said there was no poor among them. And it didn't mean that there weren't poor people in the midst. There were. It just not anymore. Why? Because those who had a lot shared with those who had a little. It was a sharing. It was the fellowship. Okay, so he talks about uh, attending to the, the teaching of the apostles. He talks about the fellowship. The third thing he mentions is the breaking of bread. Now, we hear that. That sounds like a meal. Um, it is to some extent. And a lot of times in the, in the New Testament, the early church, this breaking of bread happened at a meal. Uh, but specifically in the New Testament, uh, this is technical language. Technical language for this thing up here. The Lord's Supper. So in other words, what he's saying is that they were, they were marked out by being devoted to the sacrament. And this is because the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, focuses us. It focuses us on the center and source of Christian fellowship. Because the center and source of Christian fellowship is the sacrificial death of Jesus. It's not because we're good and nice and hang out together. We're not together because we're a social club. Listen to me. If Jesus did not die and rise again, we are wasting our time. And I, chief among us, we are wasting our time. As we participate in this meal up here, we proclaim that reality. So, teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. This is important, so listen to me. I've already made the argument that Christian faith is about returning to dependence in God, right? It's returning to dependence on God through Jesus. And so, we do that individually by placing our faith in Jesus. And we do so corporately by bringing our prayers to God. That is us coming and saying, Lord, we've got nothing. We need you. We, we need you to step into the midst of, of all of our junk and our city's junk. We pray for the same reason Jesus did, right? Jesus prayed. I don't know if you know this. Jesus would go off by himself for long periods and just go pray. 
like the whole night. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. So he'd go pray. And, and we pray for the same reason, to show our dependence on God and to bring the pain and brokenness of our city to the only one who can do something about it. Because you and I can't. No matter what false messianic hopes we may have for ourselves or our church, Jesus is the only one who can heal our city. All right, that brings us to the shape that these things make. Why do we do these things? Okay, now some of you are like, well, duh, because they tell us to. Okay, I get that. But, uh, like, stay with me if you can. You and I, we, we devote ourselves to the teaching of Scripture on Sundays. Because Christians are to be a people of God's Word throughout the week. We're devoted to one another in Jesus on Sundays because throughout the week we are to be a people of reconciliation who refuse the divisive categories that our culture and our world place on us. We give our money away on Sundays because Monday through Saturday, we're supposed to be a people of generosity, sharing our home and our time and our resources with others. We come to Jesus to feed our faith at the Lord's table on Sundays because throughout the week, we are to be a people drawing deeply on the grace of God and extending it to all who are hungry for it. We come and we show our dependence on God in prayer on Sunday because throughout the week we are to be a people utterly and lovingly dependent on God. In other words, what we do in here, and that's just the ones that Luke talks about, right? What we do in here forms us and shapes us so that our reality Monday through Saturday is reflected in what we do here. You realize what what we do on Sunday mornings is not random. Like, I don't know what should we do. You know, Jason and I don't get together like, what should we do this week? Let's try an offering. We're a little short on cash. Like, let's try singing. Let's try preaching. We always do that. I know, I need a job. Like, no, that's not what we do. Like, we do these things because, A, God's word tells us to, because God is telling us, this is how I am shaping you and forming you into the image of the Son. This is how I am making you a Christian. I'm growing your faith. That's why Christians uh, call this a means of grace. I'm going to use this time to shape you, to form you, to send you into the world. And that... We'll get to in a second, okay? Sunday shapes us into the kind of people we are to be. Now, some of us are here this morning, and we don't believe a lick of this. You don't believe a thing that I just said. Like, I've been, I've been doing this for the last 30 minutes. You're like, whatever, dude. I, I have nothing. I don't, I, I don't get you at all. And where does that leave me? Well, listen. This is why I, I say this all the time. The best place to investigate the claims of Christianity is not on Wikipedia. <laughs> the best place to investigate the claims of Christianity is right here in this room, or a room like it, where Christians are gathering around God's Word. This is, this is the best place to bring your doubts, to bring your questions. Listen, you can bring those in this place. We're not afraid of them. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not afraid of the fact that you have doubts and questions. So did I. Like, look, I didn't, become a, I didn't grow up in this. I became a Christian my freshman year of college. Like, I had plenty of doubts and questions. I had, I had bold claims about Jesus was a political revolutionary who died because he was trying to do an uprising. Like, like that's where I was until God got a hold of me. And so, we're not afraid of your questions or doubts. Bring them here. But let me be honest with you. My hope for you, I am unabashed about this hope. My hope for you is that you will come to see Jesus as bigger than your doubts. Because I think that this is what you were made for. You were made to worship him and not whatever it is that you think will make you right. Last thing I want to say, and that connects to 
what I said a second ago, and that's that worship has an outward momentum. True worship of God will always, will always result in moving you out towards the, your world to extend his grace and reign. Where Christian worship missteps, where it, makes a, where it becomes a problem instead of a help, is when it focuses more on our, uh, it leaves you more concerned with yourself and your warm fuzzy. How long will this experience last for me? If that is happening, Christian worship has, has malfunctioned. It is to send you out. When you come and you experience the grace of God for you in Jesus, when you see that his work for you has nothing to do with what you do, or even what you are, when you see that he feeds you out of his grace and he opens his throne room for you to come and to speak with him as a child speaks with their father, the only sane response is to move out and to invite any and all who will to come and join you. It's the only sane response. You see that no one is too far from the grace of God because you weren't too far from the grace of God. You see that the barriers of culture or race or economics are meant to be marginalized, not erased. It's not like we can make them all go away, but marginalized, not given ultimacy because Jesus came to you, Gentile, while he was a Jew and you were his enemy. And you see that other beggars can find bread because you as a beggar found bread. And you want God's glory to spread because of that. Look, we ascribe ultimate worth to God. We worship him because in Jesus, he has shown himself more than worthy for it and of it. And frankly, we want more people to worship him because there aren't voices enough to praise him for what he has done. Would you pray with me? Lord, wherever we're at in this room, and there's, we're at a bunch of different places, a bunch of different stories, we just ask that you would come and you would meet us, you would impress your gospel upon us. For those, uh, my friends in this room who don't know you yet, I pray that you would make today the day of their salvation. Because you are a God who stoops down and rescues us, moves us from enemy to child. You don't just pardon us, you give us the keys to your kingdom. You make us heirs with Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning. That you would make yourself bigger than our doubts. And that, Lord, for the rest of us who, who are trusting in you, uh, I pray that you would give us um, a sense of expectancy that as we worship you, we would do so with constancy and purpose. And embrace the fact that you are shaping us and molding us into the image of the Son for our city and for your glory. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.